0: Hello and welcome to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Nate Mancini, I'm one of the founders of Forefront, and I have a very special guest today, and that is Jared C. Wilson. Jared, welcome to the show.
1: Nate, thanks for having me, brother.
0: Absolutely. So, Jared C. Wilson is Assistant Professor of Pastoral Ministry and Author-in-Residence at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, General Editor of For the Church, and host of the FTC podcast and a pastor and director of the Pastoral Training Center at Liberty Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. He's an award-winning author of over 20 books. Jared also co-hosts the Art of Pastoring podcast, published by Christianity Today. So the reason I'm able to podcast uh, with Jared in person today is because he's in town to keynote the Grace Road Church Men's Conference. That's my home church here in Rochester, so big thanks to Grace Road for uh, allowing us to do this and helping make this, this whole weekend happen. So, Jared, welcome to Rochester. What are you looking forward to about this weekend?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, this is, I think, my third or fourth visit up in this area. Amazing. Um, I think maybe th- a third's probably right. So I've, I've done a couple of things for um, a conference that, that used to run in the area, and then I preached here at Grace Road I think three years or so ago. So it was pre-pandemic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I just enjoyed seeing you know, folks that um, I you know hardly ever get to see. So coming back to be able to see them and um, and just you know becoming reaccustomed to what the Lord's doing in different parts of the country. So it's always good to visit and see what God's doing.
0: Absolutely. So to to kick off the episode, we're going to do something we call the lightning round. <laughs> okay. <And> All right. <laughs> this is where I ask you a, a series of short questions, and you just answer with the very first thing that pops into gut your head. Reaction. Yeah, okay. gut, gut reaction. Yeah. Gut reaction. Okay. So, uh, Jared, what is the most beautiful place you've ever visited?
1: Sydney, Australia. Nice.
0: What is your go-to activity when you want to relax or be refreshed?
1: Uh sitting outside.
0: Which musician or singer-songwriter do you listen to most often? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um gosh, I, lately it's uh it's Old, it's uh, the Beastie Boys. (laughs) (laughs) But I wouldn't say I listen to them most often. There's just the one that, like, most recently I've been listening to the most often. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. The the recent hit. Okay. What is your favorite podcast to listen to?
1: Uh, Right now, my favorite podcast is um, The Rewatchables, which is a podcast on the Ringer Network. Bill Simmons, where they basically um, talk about movies. rewatchable movies. I've been kind of binging that for the last three weeks now, trying to listen to every episode.
0: Our, uh, our podcast director, Cody will be glad to hear that. He's a a big fan of that podcast. (laughs) Uh, we have an audience lightning question from listener Jim, who actually just wrote in recently here. He asks, do you listen to the happy rant? And is there frequent teasing of you exasperating, flattering, or just good for publicity?
1: (laughs) I do listen to the happy rant. Um, some episodes, uh, I listen to the end of you know to most episodes. There's some episodes that I kind of tune out. Peter out. Yeah, 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 yeah. It yeah. <laughs> yeah. depends on you know if it's. I like them funny. So when they're like, "Hey, here's 45 minutes of us talking about something serious," I'm like, "This is not what the it's, rant is about." It's Too earnest. Yeah, 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 yeah. This yeah, yeah. <laughs> is not why I listen to you guys. So I'll the tune those out. Rant. No, they're they're teasing to me. Is, is 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 totally fine. I realize it's in the in the vein of the show and. Um, to different degrees, I'm friends with you know with those guys, and yeah. I've only met Ted once in real life. Um, talked to him a couple times. Aside from that, and um, I like I like you know Ted. He's the most curmudgeonly of the three. Uh, pretty close with Ronnie. You can tell he looks up to yeah. you a lot, even though he doesn't show it. <laughs> yeah, it's not exasperating, and I, I don't. I'm not flattered by it either. So I don't know. It's Like somewhere in between, I suppose. I guess is the right beautiful. Yeah.
0: All right. Favorite movie of 2022 so far.
1: Oh, it's undoubtedly Nope, Jordan Peele's Nope, which I I saw three times in the theater. Yeah,
0: I've I've heard that's something.
1: It's it is great,
0: cool. If you could spend time in a pub conversing with one author from the past, who would it be?
1: Oh, C.S. Lewis is. uh, Yeah, that's that's easy one.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that that's a classic. Who is one author writing today who gives you hope for the future of fiction literature? Oh,
1: good grief. Writing today that gives me hope for the future. Like of gosh, fiction. they're all in the past. <laughs> yeah. He hasn't published in a long time, but probably, I mean, I'll just name my favorite contemporary novelist. Uh, it's a guy by the name of Paul Auster, who's a New York guy. Um, my, I, I got into him in college and just read everything that he had written. But in his later years, I mean, he's not, I don't think he's elderly, but he's older now and, um, he doesn't publish as frequently, so it's probably every five, six years or more maybe between books. So it's, it's been a while. And in terms of the future, I just think, like, he's one of the last, uh, you know, you have those sort of generational, you know, landmark novelists. And the, you know, the day of, like, the Norman Mailers and the John Updikes and Tom Wolfe and those guys, that's that's over um, and so now we're in the era of like the Jonathan Franzen's and the Michael Chabins and those sort you know, those guys, and even those guys are, are aging, you know, they're becoming the older, yeah. older guard. And Paul Auster's in that camp. He's probably my favorite in that kind of camp. Never had an Oprah book club moment like Franzen did or, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Didn't write yeah. Spider-Man two like, like Michael Chabon did, you know? Um, but he's in that guard and there's just something about his fiction that I think if there's a legacy there for others to kind of grab hold of, it might would be good for the future.
0: Beautiful. Favorite place and time of day to
1: write. Man. So usually differs. I'm actually an an early afternoon guy, which is usually when most people are tired and don't want to do anything. Yeah. Um, I do get up pretty early but I don't do my best work in the morning. I, I need to wake up some, I need to kind of putter around a little bit. Sure. So I, I think early afternoon, what was the other part of the question? Uh, favorite place to write. Favorite place. Um, my favorite place is, is a public place where there's kind of ambient noise. Yeah. I like the din of kind of a coffee shop, but sometimes it's, um, it can be too distracting in there, but yeah, in general, I like public places mm-hmm. to write. I'm, I have this theory that introverts prefer public places and extroverts need private places because they they're easily distracted, yeah. and so they need to kind of be alone in a room or in their office. I I, I rarely write in my office. Even at home, I, I have a home office. If I'm working on a, a writing project, I'm usually at the kitchen at the dining room table, right? Because there's something about it, it's just yeah. like I don't know. It's yes. more in the stream of of. What's going on? Yeah. I guess I don't know.
0: No, I like that. What was your hardest book to write?
1: The hardest book to write. Hmm. This is lightning round, but I, this has really stumped <laughs> me. I'm, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say my book, Gospel Deeps, um, only because there. I think I'm doing some of the more the heaviest lifting uh, theologically yeah. of all my books in that book. And I distinctly remember sending certain chapters to people that I respected that would read them. For that, I remember the chapter on penal substitution. I remember sending that to some guys and saying, "Am I is this crazy? Am I am I a heretic? You know those sorts of things." Um, and I haven't really done. I mean, you know, I've sent portions of other books to different people before, yeah. But more just for feedback in terms of is this good or the you know quality or things like that. This was with that book. I was really kind of keen on making sure I, the theology is is sound, and I, I don't know that it was difficult, but probably it's the most that I've sort of thought in terms of I really need to make sure this is this is right.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like a depth of research and care going into That's it right. That just takes longer. Yeah. yeah. Would you rather? <laughs> this one's breaking the fourth wall a bit, but would you rather be interviewed or interview someone else?
1: Um be interviewed, I guess. That's just that narcissistic thing. People like to talk about themselves more, you know, I I like to interview, especially when it's people I know. Yeah, Um, I do, you know, so I host a podcast where every other week I'm interviewing a guest. And then the intervening weeks, I have a co host. So I'm only, you know, basically two episodes a month is me with a guest. And I always prioritize people that I have a little bit of rapport with people that I've met before. Yeah, but you know, invariably, just as I'm sure, you know, you may be experiencing now, you have someone on like, you like them, you know, but you don't know them per se. And you're a little like, okay, how do I keep this kind of going? And some people are better interviewees than others. And so I guess I prefer to talk about myself, I guess.
0: (laughs) No, this is perfect. This is, this is exactly the answer I wanted. Um, (laughs) We're in the right place. Okay, good deal. It's Uh, a safe place. It's a safe place. Yeah, definitely. What is your favorite green room snack?
1: (laughs) So I'm not a big snack guy. I think I'm a boring answer here. This is funny because we're going to California next weekend for another uh, engagement. And the host there was like, we want to stock the deal. And I never know what to say. This is so weird. I always ask my wife. She was like, well, you know what you like to eat. And I was like, I know, but I just, I don't, I don't really snack. I mean, I'm more of a drink guy. I like make sure there's, you know, bottled waters and Coke Zero's. And I'm good. Yeah. I always want to think of something yeah. unique. Like I never eat this, but you should really put, you know, like M M&M, and M. You know, I don't you know something that. Well, hey, why not some like Lindor? You know, truffles yeah. or something. Since yeah. you're asking, uh, you, you
0: need the unique thing for the writer. Yeah. You can I used on. to be
1: I used to be a big sunflower seed guy. Yeah. Um, you know, would eat a lot of sunflower seeds, but it's probably been a year since I had those, so I, I don't even know what to say. Chips and salsa. That's what I'll say. Chips and salsa. Okay. there you go. I do
0: do that. The sunflower seeds is a good like salt of the earth, you know, baseball, (laughs) baseball dad. I'm not even a baseball guy. It's (laughs) more just like sitting in the living room watching,
1: you know, a movie or something.
0: So let's dive into the main interview here. You passed the lightning round. Okay. All right, good. So, so reading your bio, it seems like you have a lot of facets to your job. So as far as I understand, you've got the, you're a professor and you're the author in residence at MBTS. Uh, You're also a pastor and director of the pastoral training center at Liberty Baptist, and you're a general editor for the church, and there's the podcast, and you do the travel and speaking at conferences like you are this weekend. Yeah. So that's that's a lot going on. That's a lot of a, a yeah. lot a lot of different pieces. So my wife to, tells uh, me yeah. <laughs> to to Jared Wilson. So are all these kind of sharing your time, you know, in a given week, or are there one or two that are kind of the, the majority of your time, and the others are fit in the margins?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll take one out of the mix right away. The general editor for the church. It means nothing. <laughs> I do li- I do nothing. So I used to be the managing editor, in, in which it was part of my job actually at the seminary, right, where right. I did almost everything every lever um, and some things even beyond the website for the church um, social media and everything else I oversaw all of that since rolling over to faculty I don't have a finger in any of that basically all I'm responsible for is a weekly article so I write my own you know pieces that normally comes out on Monday I've been traveling a lot the last couple you know month and a half or so so I haven't been as regular but normally I have a Monday article that comes out every week and then they were just like, we're gonna call you general editor. It's, 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 it's just a figurehead title. I, I don't I barely know the guys that work over there now. <laughs> so I, I, I handed it off to Ronnie Kurtz, who used to be my yeah. co-host on the podcast, good friend of mine. He has since moved on to Cedarville, University in Ohio. And so you know, who, uh, you know the fellow who took his place is a great guy. I don't know him very well. Like, it's just we're in two different worlds. So they just gave me this sort of title. It's kind of oh, yeah. like, Editor emeritus is what it is. Like, oh. I, I have no responsibilities. So I'll take that one off. Lay, it's just lay
0: pastor, general editor. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It's, uh, it's, it's a good kind of, um, you know, credential to have, yeah. but I, it has no responsibilities I, attached to it I, at all.
0: I did go on the website <laughs> and I saw there were a lot of general editors and I was like, Inter- yeah. interesting.
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, when we lost, we're like, let's just everybody. You get one. It's like Oprah with the cars. <laughs> you get a general editorship. You get a general. So, yeah, so I'll take that one off. Okay. Um, no, the other stuff. What's great is um, I'm in a stage of life, in a season of ministry, where I have a lot of freedom and flexibility. Uh, I, I do have classes that I teach every semester. Uh, I'm able to usually schedule those in such a way that I can kind of work everything else around them. Correct. So currently, I teach on Mondays. Um, in the spring, I'll have a different... Uh, I think I'll teach on Thursday mornings. And So oh, nice. so just one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So usually, I, yeah, I like to do the three-hour block yeah. classes. So instead of doing multiple days, we're going to like, it's just a weekly class for three hours. Yeah. Um, I prefer that. And then when I schedule traveling and those sorts of things, I just avoid that day. And every now and then, you know, um, I'm not able to do that, but and I'll have a substitute or something. But by and large, I just work around, you know, when that day is. Uh, and when I'm in town, I'll, I'll still be on campus. Usually Tuesdays and Wednesdays are our um, chapel days. Um, so those are big kind of community days for the school and for, you know, campus life. Sure. Um, but other than that, like you know, the school is is glad for me to have a, you know public ministry. They gave me a very wide lane to kind of run in yeah. and to write and travel, and so everything just kind of you know there's, there's a great generosity of spirit from them, and there's a great flexibility um, from them, and so I just sort of patch my life together with a as a quilt. You know, it's like well, I'll do some speaking here, and then I'll work on a book here, and then I yeah. and I just sort of patch it all together. Yeah, every given week is a different thing. And so, um, you know, different things will be yeah, it's just not a regular schedule. I don't have an eight to five Monday through Friday type life. Yeah. There's some days where like I'll I'll be saying to my wife, you know, I'll be home on Wednesday and the next week I'll be like, I'll be home on Thursday, you know, the next week, you know, it's different all the time. I've got to do that with the residents as well because it's sure. it's a pretty discipleship based, you know, um, you know, program at the church that I lead. And uh, we have monthly group meetings on a Sunday evening. But, but you know, beside that, I'll, I have a calendar, a personal calendar that I send out with open appointments so we can do coffees and lunches and things. Sure. And that's just always different. Like I just say to the guys, there's not going to be like, oh, every Tuesday is the right time. It's just you'll look at the calendar and go, oh, man, he's got an hour here and then an hour here. And yeah. it's just different. So, yeah.
0: Nice. Yeah, and it seems like you know, you've got, you've got uh, a church and a seminary and kind of a parachurch organization. And so it's, it's neat that you're kind of a part of each of those, but they all have a similar spirit of that kind of mission yeah. and flexibility involved in that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's part of you know the theme of my ministry is, is really gospel centrality. And to the extent yeah. that that will fit with um, you know, these, these other ministries, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to serve and I'm grateful for the opportunities to do that. Yeah,
0: I love that. So, as we also uh, mentioned in the bio, last year you hosted a podcast with Ronnie Martin called The Art of Pastoring. And uh, is that going to be coming back? <laughs>
1: if you ask us, yes. If you ask Christianity Today, I don't know. We've been asking them that for a year and a half okay. um, because we would really love to do it. It's it, it you know, Mr. Cosper was our producer and... and Uh, you know, kind of overseeing things. And then he did this little podcast called the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And then the success of that (laughs) has, I think caused some um, opportunities for them to kind of rethink and rebuild and add staff. And it's really afforded them some new opportunities. So they're in a state of flux. I I, I know. But we plan to do it. Yeah.
0: Well, I thought that was, uh, it was a great podcast. And I thought it, it's a neat lead-in to just the conversation about faith and art because you literally kind of paired them together in your title, these two ideas of art and pastoring. Yeah. And I, I just wondered, uh, you know, in what sense would you say pastoring is an art?
1: Well, it's an art because it's not, you know, you have the, the unchanging God and you have the unchanging uh, doctrine and yet, the application of that to the human experience um, is such a, an opportunity for discernment. Yeah. It's, it's such a, a mercurial thing, the human experience. Knowing, um, Just as an example, so when someone is, is hurting or suffering, and you have the right theology, we even learn from the Bible itself that having the right theology at the wrong time is almost like having the wrong theology so knowing how to discern when to say God's sovereign over this he's in control over this you're not denying that that's true and you know that will be will be helpful to the person who's hurting but it may not be helpful to the person who's hurting in hour 1 sure. of you know in the epicenter of their grief there may be another word from the scripture well applied so right. it's it's really trying to say like um, there is an art to to shepherding God's people because people are, are different and people are broken and, and and certainly sinful, but because there's not kind of a one-size-fits-all mathematical formula to pastoral ministry, you have to think of it outside the box of pragmatism mm-hmm. and outside the box of kind of a formulaic approach to things. And that's kind of where the idea for the art of it came from.
0: Yeah, I, I like that way of putting it outside the box of pragmatism, and that um, it's interesting too. Like what you say about suffering, right? That 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 the right response in a situation might be even just silence. That's right. Uh, or or you know or grief, and that's kind of contrasted with what people typically think about a pastor, which is someone preaching, right? And here's somebody who has to. To, to do both of these things, yeah. to be able to proclaim and preach out, but also to be quiet and silent and, like, present with people. It's interesting. And I,
1: I think there's an art to preaching as well. I mean, yeah. there's there's a difference, you know, between the guy who treats the sermon like a rigid kind of verse-by-verse, verse, you know, download of data. Yeah. Um, and it's not that you couldn't get something out of that. It's not as if that can't be edifying, but there's a difference between that seeing the sermon as like, okay, here's the data that I'm downloading now to you, um, and the guy who is wanting to bring the not just the, um, the theology and the the soundness and you know the spirit of God that's in the text, but also the pathos and the the you know empathy and the coming alongside um, people that the sermon is. Um, Alistair Begg calls preaching passionate pleading. Mm. Um, there's a kind of of passion there that's beyond just a raised voice or dynamic. You know, you know, gesticulations. There's yes. there's a passion that's like you love the people, you love God, but you also love the people that you're preaching to. There's a sense of um, really um, pastoring through the sermon, mm. and when you begin to think of the you know, the sermon itself as sort of a part of the pastoral task, not not distinct from it. But a part of it, um, you begin to see, I think, how, how preaching, how there's an art, there's a different sensibility and a sensitivity to preaching as well. Yes.
0: No, that's great. Our, um, our podcast director, Cody, had asked me to ask you exactly that, which is like, in, in what sense is preaching an art form? And I think you, you answered that. But you yourself um, preach, I, I don't know if you preach on a regular basis or kind of occasionally as needed.
1: Um, at the church, more and more. So I just joined the elder board of our church two months ago, three months ago. Um, it used to be that I preached at the church probably once a year, twice a year. Yeah. Now it's it's, it's a little more regular than that, once every six weeks or so, something like that. Nice. Um, but I'm preaching all the time yeah. at, in my travels. So no, I don't have the same congregation that I'm preaching to, but um, right. I, I preach a lot Yeah, throughout yeah. the year.
0: So that's, and, and may, may, I don't know if, you know, in some ways that's even more challenging where you almost have to get to know a, a new group of people and their sensibilities and how to apply that art in the way you were saying. It, it,
1: it very much is, brother. And even in terms of the art thing, like, obviously there are, there are messages that I'll, for lack of a better word, recycle. There's messages yeah. where I know. Um, so, like, for instance, this weekend I'm preaching at Grace Road. Um, I asked, like, um, is there a series you want me to contribute to? Is there something you want me to bring? I was just told, bring your best sermon, right? Um, I thought, well, okay. Well, (laughs) next weekend, there's three brand new things I've got to do. I I don't have, you know, the church I'm preaching in, they're going through uh, Matthew and where the passage falls. I've never preached on that before, so i got to write a new sermon for that. I'm preaching at a conference right before that on a topic assigned to me Um, I've never preached that particular topic that they're wanting me to preach on or, you know, that angle on it anyway. And, you know, so there are things that, that I'm having to write that's new, but, um, I have this sort of fear of like, I don't want it to be an act. I don't want to just have kind of the portfolio and okay, now it's time to go do this set of talks and let's go do this set of talks. So part of it is, um, just personal and devotionally, like it becomes an act if, you're just if you are just going through the motions. This is just yeah. the material. Do I really believe it? Is am I still passionate about it? That that contributes to whether it's authentic or not. But then the other part is um, to the extent that I'm able, and obviously I'm not, uh, you know, as able as someone who's um, actually local and actually accountable and you know that sort of thing. Sure. Um, but I want to know like what's the church like? What's the you know demographics? What are the particular idols of the church? Those sorts of things. And that helps me because I can tweak things perhaps, or just know going in prayerfully, you know, to the, again, to the extent that I'm able, these are the people that I'm preaching to. But anyone who, who, you know, who has done both knows there's a vast difference between preaching to the same people every single week and going and doing kind of a one-off at a conference and that kind of thing.
0: It's all because you almost have to win them over, not just for this specific message, but in general. You know, yeah which is or worse
1: uh, the alternative so the alternative to that is you don't care sure. <laughs> right you're just like <laughs> i get to leave so i am just gonna you know do whatever i want to do and um That's so and what, there, what are what guys, approach, there are guys there are guys that approach, do that yeah, right yeah
0: <laughs> out the back door directly to my assigned parking space there you go yeah <laughs> so you know when it comes to this uh this intersection of of faith and art. You know, we've been talking about the the art of pastoring, but as as we take this a little bit more generally to to other practices of the arts, you know, the evangelical church has a lot of competing uh, influences and kind of moments of history that have I think impacted us in regards to our understanding of the arts and, and how our faith uh intersects with that. And I think you know, there's the Reformation, which gave us this kind of, it was, it was a bit of a reactionary iconoclasm to sacred art. But the Reformation also gave us this kind of rich theology of vocation of the fact that uh, in all that we do, we can glorify God, even if it's not necessarily kind of baptized in, in sacred language. So the breaking down of the sacred-secular divide, um, which I think was, was uh, really beneficial for the arts. But then more recently, you know, if you think about evangelicalism in America, there was kind of the the Christian subculture that was formed, um, creating Christian art, particularly I think in the 90s and 2000s, it was pretty prevalent. Um, So a a lot of these different moments and modes of thought in terms of how artists in the church think about their place. And I wondered uh, when, when you think about this, you know, when you think about, um, you know, counseling uh, and an, an artist in the church or somebody trying to find their way, uh, wh- what do you think are kind of the the distinctives? Uh, what, you know, how should a, a Christian in the arts be be different or distinct, uh, in in what way?
1: Wow, that's a great question. We we wrestle with this a little bit. I teach a writing course at Midwestern Seminary, and we deal a lot with like w- what is Christian writing. For instance, yeah. what exactly makes a piece of, of literature a Christian story? Is it because there's an explicit, you know, communication of Christian theology in it? Yeah. Um, you know, is the plan of salvation sort of outlined in, in some way? I remember, so, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I had this book, Echo Island, come out, young adult novel. And part of the publishing kind of questionnaire was, um, was something along those lines, like what's the explicit Christian content or what's the you know, how is the plan of the gospel or, I mean, it was something along those lines. I forget exactly what it was. It's but, like a
0: given that it, it's going to be explicit. Just tell us how yeah, yours exactly. is Yeah, <laughs> and Yeah. And I, and I wrote,
1: there isn't any. <laughs> I put in there, I said, there's not any. And I thought maybe I this is like, this. <laughs> maybe this is going to torpedo the whole thing. And um, they said, okay, you know, they, <laughs> they went with it. So I don't think that it's, you know that you have to have an explicit. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong if you do do that. I think you know there's a, a an art to that, right? Um, you know how it's presented in a way that doesn't feel like propaganda or doesn't feel, you know, routine or or corny or something like that. So I don't think that it has to be explicit. It can be as 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 Lewis said. Um, you know, latent. You know, he said we need more. Works with the Christianity latent, so it's kind of under the surface. I think that's the distinction. Yeah, is that the motivation of whatever's being portrayed is coming from a, a place of, gosh, the the hope and redemption. There's a there's a redemptive sense. Mm-hmm. So I don't. So I don't think that rules out in, in any particular genre, even things like horror, perhaps. Sure. But it, I think the Christian version of that. Um, Is not one where everybody survives and there's a happy ending in it because that's not real Christian either. But that doesn't glory in the gruesome. It doesn't have a, um, you know, the darkness doesn't win or at least doesn't have the last word Mm. in some way. I think it's, it's written from a place of, you know, from the Christian worldview, which could be as simple, honestly, as a Christian's the one who wrote it. And that's probably controversial, I think, for some. But I just think, can we trust the Holy Spirit to constrain the flesh of a Christian writer? And can we trust them um, and then judge the work on its merits, not on whether it has the plan of salvation outlined? Right. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's been interesting in, in our work at Forefront is like, it is more about finding the, the people we trust, the artists we trust, rather than necessarily trying to individually kind of locate and critique each specific work because it's almost impossible, like going at it in that way, to kind of even discern some of those details about, about kind of the, the, how, how someone's faith results in a particular work until you know the person. And then when you know the person, you kind of see as their work flows out from them uh, some some of the intentionality there, so I, I feel like that's that's kind of the blessing when you when you do you know get to know a great Christian novelist or whoever it might be, uh, and you can kind of you kind of trust at that point that that's there in their work, and then when you read it, it kind of opens up a new yeah. vista for you. I think that can be really special.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think of things like you know, the novels of Leifanger anger, or you know, yeah, lovely, of course, like Marilyn Robinson and and, and yeah. those, they're writing about. Um, you know Robinson especially, but there is there is an explicit theological content, or at least pastoral, or you know, there's a there are Christian characters, there are, there's Christian ideas. Sure. And I've asked myself like, why when these guys write about these things, does it feel authentic? Um, when in the quote unquote Christian marketplace, they write about the this these same things. And it doesn't feel authentic. Yeah. And I think a lot of it just has to do with, um, number one, the greater story or the greater context of of where these things are. There's a ring of of truth to every angle. Whereas if you read a Christian novel or go see a Christian movie, the Christian stuff is in this kind of prefab script of how we think life ought to be, yeah, how we think life ought to go, where the people always say the right things and have the inspirational speech and the atheist you know professor gets owned in front of everybody at the you know whatever it is the memification of christian script writing those sorts of things whereas the angers they can put the christian in there or even like a, a john updike whose novels are not christian novels at all and in fact you know some of them have some pretty you know gnarly adult content in them and yet he was a churchgoer. he was someone who who professed faith, Um, you know, whether, you know, how faithful he was, I guess we'll leave to the Lord to decide, but he has pastor characters, he has faithful pastor characters and unfaithful pastor characters, and the religion, the New England religion in particular that he depicted has a ring of authenticity because it's in the real world. Yes. So even when they're communicating theological content, it doesn't sound corny because it sounds like the fabric of real life. I think that's true for Robinson and, and yeah. anger and others as well. Whereas for the Christian, it becomes the whole point. The story is an artifice around some kind of message. Right. Yeah, that's right. really kind of the difference, I think. Yeah,
0: I like that. It's funny. We were just at the the Catholic Imagination Conference, and we're we're not Catholic ourselves, but but ironically, there are a lot of folks who aren't Catholic at that conference. And it's a, a wonderful uh, event focused on like the the Catholic literary imagination. Mm-hmm. So this question came up um, very often, and and particularly in regards to Catholicism. And every session kind of touched on it in some way. Like, what does it mean for a novel to be like a Catholic novel? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. And uh, it was it was just so funny because a very similar uh, question or challenge got brought up from somebody in the audience at like each session being like, you know, why, wouldn't your novels be better if they were like more explicitly Catholic? <laughs> you know, well, was, what was, was the
1: answer? <laughs> what was the kind of answer given back? Like and, what makes a novel Catholic?
0: Right. Well, that's, um, we were listening to like one of the, the speakers was the novelist, Christopher Beha. And, and he was, was very much on that, that side of what you're talking about, which is, like it's it it has to be organic and like you you can you can have you know preacher characters or not but it's not all about sending a message, right. very much embedded. Um. So so when when he would get this challenge of like, shouldn't your novels be more explicitly Catholic? He would just be like, no. Yeah. Like they they would be worse if they were. <laughs> <laughs> like they would not be better. It's <laughs> funny.
1: Well, I mean, you take a. I mean, take a a biblical example. So. We just at our church preach the Book of Esther, and, sure. and one of the most famous, you know, famously notable things about the Book of Esther is that the name of God isn't yeah. mentioned in the entire thing. <laughs> yeah.
0: And nobody's preaching the gospel. No, there's no clear. And
1: even like when Esther's requesting that Mordecai intercede on her behalf, she doesn't even say "Pray for me." She says, "You know, um, you know, all of you fast," and you're like. And pray, Esther, and like right. she, she doesn't even she that's doesn't even say pray. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> just fast for me. Don't pray for me. Um, you know, God is this invisible character. He's kind of in the background, but yeah. his providential hand is so is so evident through what's that's taking right. place, and and obviously in then in the in the context of the of you know the storyline of the whole Bible, you see how this fits in. Yeah. But just as an example, like here is a biblical story that has no explicit faith content in that in that sense. And yet, yeah. it's undeniable that it's a uh, it's a biblical story. You know, it's a Jewish right. story for sure. And you know, given the the New Covenant revelation, it's a Christian story as as well.
0: Right, an, an incredible work of literature, and maybe one of the most exciting. And, oh man and it's, it's it's
1: it's, heli- it's funny, it's thrilling, it's poetic. It is yeah. a great story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's Shakespearean almost. It's pre Shakespeare, the kind of comic you know, and, and, and cliffhanger-y kind of you know, stuff in it. So I want to move on to talking
0: about uh, some of your books. You've written uh, over 20 books, uh, primarily nonfiction, but some fiction as well. I know you had a novel called Otherworld, I believe, in 2013, and you recently released Echo Island in 2020. So uh, what led you to, to dive into fiction writing originally, and what brought you back to it?
1: Yeah, so actually it was the other way around, man. I started out as a storyteller. Really? Okay. Yeah, so the very first book I ever wrote was this book, World, which didn't get published Really, till, that was your first that one? That was the first book I ever wrote. Amazing. 1997, we had just moved to Nashville, Tennessee. I wanted to be a novelist. Um, you know, was, you know, felt called into ministry. I wanted to pastor. But yeah. in terms of publishing, I wasn't thinking in terms of building a nonfiction career. I was thinking I want to write novels, and I've wanted wow. to do that since I was a little kid, actually. So, you know, began writing, um, highly influenced, you know, heavily influenced by Stephen King. Um, and then, and, and of course, C.S. Lewis. So you kind of put those kind of two yeah. things together. I had this sort of, you know, speculative fiction kind of idea. Um, Otherworld has some horror type elements to it. It's not really a horror novel, but it has some of those elements in it. And I got an, you know, I was, you know, blessed enough to get an agent from that first manuscript. And, you know, the book didn't get published. And so I started writing a second book. I wrote a second novel, which is still unpublished. I think it's, to this day, it's still, it's one of the best things I've ever written. It's sitting in this shelf. Um, I, I told my wife, like, this is going to be my post-mortem, uh, you know, book for you. Like, when I die, uh, I, that's like, there'll be a portion of time where I'm famous because you, you're only famous right? right after you die. People are like, oh, he was such, she was so great or she was so great. Like, right after you die. It, it only lasts for maybe, a, you know, six yeah, months or eight yeah. months. So I was like, you've got this manuscript this is the he just died manuscript. You can get it published. you know get a little scratch for yourself and the kids. write you know you, you can catch it on my death with this book. Uh, I think it's great. Amazing. But my agent, it was too long. My agent said for a first time author, um, I couldn't show this to a publisher. It was like 600 some you know manuscript pages and so he, he showed it to like four or five publishers, and of course it didn't get published. Then I started writing a third novel, which was Echo Island. Yeah, and I got about halfway through, and we planted a church, and I didn't have time to finish it, so I set it aside. Uh, this half-written novel. My agent came about a year later and, and said to me, um, "If you want me to represent you, I need a manuscript. I need to, you know." And I said, "Well, I don't really have time to finish the book, you know, you know, to finish the story." But I just did this sort of ten-week series through um, the historical Jesus at my church and I could turn those sermons into book chapters and do a book on the historical Jesus. And he said, you know, you're a not, um, you're a fiction guy. You don't have a platform. Nonfiction authors need to have a platform. They need to be known. Um, It's hard to sell books if nobody knows who you are and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, this is all I have right now. And he said, well, all right, you know, put something together. We'll see what happens. So I put a proposal together. I wrote like two or three sample chapters, send it in. We got a book deal with with, with Kregel Publishers. It wasn't you know wasn't anything like quit the day job, everybody. We're gonna you know, but it was a real That's book, awesome. and it yeah. was like it was really published, and it was a dream come true for me. And um and then you know some work started coming my way a little bit. I did a couple of things with Crossway and um, some Lifeway Bible study type things, and kind of getting some some momentum going. And then you know three years or so years later, I went go back to the agent. I was like, I've got you know some time now. I can finish Echo Island. And he was like, you know, you're really a nonfiction guy now. <laughs> you're like, Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> which was weird because um, I'm not with that agent anymore. But he, I signed with him as a novelist. He primarily did Christian fiction. That's kind of his thing. So my nonfiction was almost kind of an outside mm. the box deal for him, uh, which is why eventually I, I you know, moved on to another agent that more specializes in in those things. Sure. Um, but I was grateful that years later um h approached me so the, so you know 3 or 4 years ago uh, you know BNH reached out and said hey we know you've dabbled in fiction and um, we wonder if you'd be willing to write a kind of tween like for 10 11 year olds kind of thing and i said you know i don't think i could do that i don't i'm not familiar with that market i, I don't read in that you know genre and i was like but you know 10 15 years ago whenever it was i started writing this novel and I didn't envision it this way, but the main characters are four, you know, teenage boys. Yeah. It could be a young adult novel. It could be like high school, college age perhaps. And they said, wow, we're not really publishing that type of stuff, but we'll, you know, we'll take a look at it. So I sent them this half written, you know, 10, 15. I mean, I literally, I think it was, it was 2005. And this was, was when I had like kind of stopped writing it. And this was, years ago when i was talking to somebody about it so what is that 16 years something like that yeah between 10 and 15 years i sent them this this you know 15 year old half written novel and uh i was like you know whatever and they wrote back and they go this is really good we want to know how it ends <laughs> and i said thank you i said my wife has been on me for 15 years she wants to know how the story ends And, um, now we'll
0: find out together. Yeah. Because I had a contract.
1: I was like, I'll actually finish it now. And I got to finish this story and it was so wonderful to revisit this world. And I think it, I mean, it's clearly God's timing because I'm obviously, you know, anybody would be a better writer 15 years in than they are, you know, when they start. Sure. And so I think I had abilities to bring to it that I didn't, when I first started writing it and, um, But it's a story I never could shake. It it was always in my head all these years. Um, And I would tell people about it. Hey, I've written, you know, I'm going to finish the story one of these days and it's going to be good. I promise you, you know,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get a book deal. You're going to That's right. That's right. (laughs) So let's talk about uh, Echo Island specifically. So here's a, a brief synopsis for our listeners of Echo Island. When four recent high school graduates return home from a weekend of camping, they expect to go back to life as usual. Instead, the boys discover empty streets, abandoned cars, and utter silence. Everyone has disappeared. As the friends attempt to solve the mystery, they stumble upon more questions than answers. So... As I was reading the book, I certainly got kind of Lost vibes. I think just with the, the mystery. that's kind of island based, and yeah, there's a bit of a mystery box element. This is
1: this is before you know, Lost. I started writing this,
0: but Lost got it from you. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right.
1: Well, what's funny is when I would tell people about it in the years ensuing. So I started yeah. writing this before Lost was a thing, and. Later, when I'm telling people about it, hey, I started this novel years ago. I want to finish it. And I, I described this island, and they're like, oh, like Lost. I'm like, no, not like Lost. Not at all like Lost. I have the receipts. I had this. <laughs> That's right. No, I mean, it's a small town that they live on. It's not an island they discovered. <laughs>
0: they didn't crash in a plane. They crashed in a car. That's it's different. Well, yeah, well okay. I, I hear what you
1: said. No, it's more of a, where most people's brains go is because it's their, it's their town that they yeah. They go on this camping trip and when they come back to this, to their town, which is in this, you know, it's a small island town, um, you know, Washington state off the coast. When they come back, everyone's gone where a lot of people's, you know, minds go is, oh, it's the rapture, right? Sure. It, they've yeah. been left behind. And I'm always going to say
0: explicitly like, referenced explicitly in the explicitly re- <laughs>
1: repudiate that whole thing because I just don't want anyone to, to think, oh, here's another rapture story from a Christian, you know. It's a
0: Christian novel. Everyone's gone. <laughs> Everyone's gone. What's it's, it going to be? <laughs> it's got to be the rapture.
1: Uh, no, and they actually talk about that, if you remember. Yeah. And one of them reasons, it can't be the rapture, because Jason, one of the other friends, is is still with us, and he's a Christian. So it can't be that. <laughs> Maybe us. You know, I like, it makes sense that we're left behind. But Jason's with us, so it can't be the rapture. Well,
0: they're also like, everybody's gone. like, There are a lot of people in this town. I don't think they were. (laughs) They're all saved. They're all saved. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So the next question includes spoilers for Echo Island. So if anybody listening hasn't read the book and you don't want it spoiled, just go ahead and skip ahead about two and a half minutes uh, and keep listening from there. Okay. Here we are in spoilers for Echo Island. You have a character named Jack in the novel. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I thought he bears a remarkable resemblance in both the way he looks and the way he speaks to a certain uh, C.S. Lewis. Yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, he is I C.S. Think Lewis. I conspicuously uses the term supposal. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So if you, if you indeed wrote C.S. Lewis into your uh, fiction novel, is that the ultimate reformed pastor flex? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's
1: actually something he, he started himself. So I'm trying to stay kind of in his... Actually, he didn't start it. So, uh, you know, Dante's Inferno, which is another influence mm-hmm. on the book itself. So, oh, it's with Virgil. Yeah, so you have Virgil as the guide. Yeah. And then what Lewis did was in The Great Divorce, which is his version of kind of the afterlife, yes. you know, story, he has uh, um, uh, George MacDonald as yeah. the guide. And I thought, well, I'm going to just keep the ball rolling. And in my, you know, mythic story, I'm going to have C.S. Lewis as the guide. Now, we're in spoiler territory. Yeah. I've never actually even talked about this on any other podcast. So this, this purely is a...
0: Breaking news. I'm
1: really going in. It's like two years in. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of you know, breaking my own rule here. But Unveiling the secrets. Once the, the revelation comes about that, the, that they're in a novel, right, that they realize their character's in a novel, and there is an author who is writing these stories, yeah. um, it got really fun because I, I'm trying to imagine what C.S. Lewis would feel like having some other author make him a character and I think this is still in the book at least it was in my original draft where you have um, them asking if the author's any good, and C.S. Lewis is like, yeah he's all right," <laughs> because I was thinking, what kind of, what? How would C.S. Lewis appraise my writing? And I think he probably would think I'm like, he wouldn't think I'm terrible, but I don't think he would think I was very good. <laughs> you know, I don't think he'd think I was great. So I'm trying to be honest, like, eh, he's all right. He, he's just the author," you know. Yeah. And they ask him like, "Is is he God?" And you know, and, oh, and Jack's no. like, "Of course not. <laughs> no. He's God. He's not God," you know. Um, so there are like, you know, it just Got fun to kind of play with these sort of like holding a mirror up to another mirror kind of idea was what yeah. happened once i I went there yeah
0: oh, I love that I, I I didn't make that connection with Lewis doing that with McDonald's. That's great. Well, it was a fascinating book. I really, really enjoyed reading it, and um, we'll get to a, a little bit more on that before we close. We got to get into my favorite part of the interview, okay, which is audience questions okay so we we have a few questions from uh some some folks that you may know the first one is actually an audio question from daryl dash pastor of liberty grace church in toronto so i'm going to play this audio question
1: hey jared daryl dash here and i wanted to ask you a question about writing fiction a lot of writers who are good at nonfiction aren't as good at writing fiction how did you learn how to do that and which do you find more enjoyable i'd love to hear the answer <laughs> Uh, Man, fantastic question. So I mean, similar to the answer, you know, that I gave you about diving into fiction it was actually the other way around. I began, you know, as, as a young kid, just loving stories. And even thinking on that level, not just this is entertaining, but how is this story put together? Why is this interesting? Um, You know, it might not have been explicit questions in my brain. But I was trying to kind of figure this thing out just like, some little kids are mechanically inclined and they're taking apart the radio and they don't know what each piece is called, but they are like, what's inside here and "And what go? you know, what makes the sound and how do I, you know, all those sorts of things. I was thinking that way about books and about stories and about movies also, like just yeah. the, um, you know, I, I wanted to know who was the writer of this movie even when I was, you know, eight, nine, 10-year-old kid, um, which a lot of my friends, they didn't care about that, is the money. Is the movie funny? Is it cool? Is it scary? That's what they wanted to know.
0: They didn't watch the credits. <laughs> no, like
1: I was looking up reviews, I you know, I mean, I just have you know been, you know, thinking on that level about it and and I've been writing stories since I was a little kid as well. So, you know, I I don't know how anyone gets good at it, you know, even if you're starting as an adult or just as an older, you know, child, you, you don't get good at it unless you just do it a lot and you have to yeah. enjoy that kind of literature um as well i think the reason a lot of nonfiction, you know writers of nonfiction don't write fiction is it's probably because they don't read a whole lot of fiction themselves um you know not all of them but you know by and large if you don't read it you're not going to be able to write it
0: yeah, yeah. so we have a couple of questions from adam ramsey he's lead pastor at Liberty church in gold coast australia he asks jared do you have a sequel on the radar for echo island This is important information for at least three out of five of the Ramsey kids as well as their dad.
1: (laughs) You know, I keep dropping hints with B&H about it. They have not reached out to me about this. Um, I did not actually originally write it with a sequel in mind. In fact, the ending is very much kind of a this is their story now. Mm -hmm. Um, I was trying to kind of put it into the reader's imagination of what happens next and yeah. let them own their own story. So we're not kind of voyeurs into their story anymore. They're commanding their own destiny. Not really, you know, the author is still committing their destiny. But when the book ends, it's it sort of, it's just in, in, in my mind, which in my mind means it's in their mind. It's their, sure. it's their story. But in the, you know, since completing it, I've begun to think in terms of a trilogy. So I do have kind of a, a rough map, not details per se, but I've got rough plots of a second and third book that would kind of finish the whole thing. But that's just, you know, those are just hopes and dreams. There's no, there's no plans for that.
0: All the best trilogies have three parts. Like <laughs> well, <laughs> that's good. That's good. So, so we have um, B&H Publishing needs to get back to you about the sequel. That's right. To that. And uh, Christianity Today needs to get back to you the sequel of Art of Pastoring.
1: <laughs> <So laughs> That's right. Man. <laughs> a lot, a lot yeah. of action items for no, these organizations. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the real thing is what they would say is well. If you would sell enough books, then there would be, you know, it'd be a no-brainer. But it's, you know, the onus is on me, I guess. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh,
0: so Adam Ramsey also asks, Is your recent episode of Combat with Snakes preparation for your upcoming trip to Australia or more of a Christus Victor kind of thing?
1: (laughs) I hope it's not preparation. I've not seen a snake. We've been to Australia five or six times already, and I am trying to stay away from anything that could kill me, which I know is difficult to do out there. So I hope it's not preparation. Uh, I hope I don't see another snake for a long, long time.
0: Did you have a recent Combat with Snakes? I did, yes.
1: I was sitting outside, as is my want, and I got a text from my wife saying there is a snake in our bathroom, and I said, "What?" <laughs> and so I'm like scrambling. I'm trying to think, of like, how do, would I? What get, do you
0: want me to do? <laughs> how would I
1: get a snake out of the bathroom? I grabbed a shovel out of the garage. I go into the bathroom. She, she's standing on the toilet. Oh no! And there is indeed a snake uh, on the on the uh, tile underneath the vanity, underneath the cabinets of of our vanity, and um, I, I have no idea how it got in. I, I don't know where it came from it was not you know it wasn't a baby but it wasn't full grown it was kind of it was probably yeah. juvenile it was it was maybe a little over a foot long and um and i killed it right there on the you know later because i didn't know what it was man like i just by looking at it i don't know what kind of snakes or or what so as far as i knew it could it could be venomous it, who, who knows later i looked it up and discovered no it actually it you know I probably could have picked it up with my hands, you know. (laughs) But in the moment, I didn't know. And I wasn't going to be like, hold on, snake, while I Google. Let me figure out what what you are. (laughs) Let me take a picture and and then download this app to identify. You know, someone else was like, hey, there's an app you can get. And I was like, that's great for the future. But in the moment, I'm not like, let me download this app. And I just thought, I want the snake out of my bathroom. And the the quickest way I knew how was to chop its head off. You're like,
0: I'm going to crush its head before it
1: breathes. That's exactly (laughs) what I did. That's exactly what I did.
0: We have a couple audience questions from Charles Smith, who works at MBTS. He's also a general editor for the church. Yeah, exactly. Again, he think, does about uh, as much as I do. So, <laughs> a, 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 a very um, prestigious title. He asks, how does the gospel—this <laughs> is a very, uh, a very simple question. How does the gospel shape your understanding of beauty?
1: Oh, my word. <laughs> um, I'll, speak, I'll speak broadly. Um, because the gospel conveys to us the glory of Christ— and the glory of Christ is the most beautiful reality in existence. There is no one more glorious than Jesus, no one more beautiful than Jesus. It puts the onus on us to reflect that glory in some way by um, aspiring to beauty in our writing, um, even just in, in excellence in any kind of artistry or, or technology or beyond. We, we aspire to excellence because of the beauty of, of Jesus. And that, of course, is given to us through the gospel. We're we're being conformed to that beauty by the Holy Spirit over time. Um, you know, the grounding of that is is the good news of Jesus. And so, trying to write in an artful way, in a in an excellent way, in a beautiful way, is in some way to kind of give thanks. It's an act of worship, even if the stuff I'm writing is not explicitly yes. theological or Christian. It's me, you know. It's like. Uh, um, you know, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Well, when I'm writing, I feel his pleasure, and I'm trying to, in some way, thank him and give you know, um, you know, gratitude to him for, for what he's purchased for me by doing it the best that I know how to do it.
0: Absolutely. Charles also asks, are creatives... Andrew Peterson would want us to say artists, born
1: or made. Wow, both. I think both. Um, I think everyone is born with a creative sense. It's just not the same. It doesn't mean that someone is a quote unquote creative. Yeah, there are things that engineers are doing. They may not have a an eye at all for you know Jackson Pollock's paintings or. You know, or even good music, or something like that. But the symmetry and the detail and the specificity and the balance and everything they're doing—there's definitely an art to that. Mm-hmm. Um, little kids, especially, just the way they play. I mean, it's it's rare to find a little kid who doesn't play make believe. Yeah, it's rare to find a little kid who doesn't want to do finger paints. Um, so I think all of us have kind of that you know reflection of the. Um, the image of God in us, that way, the creative sense reflecting the Creator's yeah. image in us. But what emerges, what perseveres, is probably what's made. We're we're encouraged, we're uh, affirmed in this, or it brings us more pleasure than other pursuits do, and so we pursue it. For some, the finger paints and the mac and the make believe give way to oh I'm actually more interested in these more rational kind of things or Mm -hmm. athletics or whatever which there's an art to even those things as well but in terms of being a creative or being an artist per se people they you know they figure out this actually fires me up a bit more yeah um and so in that sense I think they're made as as well yeah
0: right there, there's there's certainly like a, a genetic component to that and like you said just the image of god component of being subcreators. creators but then that question of what do we cultivate in our life yeah going
1: forward that's yeah. right and it, it's not even necessarily from you know external it certainly can be yeah and for a lot of us is i had you know good teachers that said you're a good writer and i don't know where i would be if i didn't have you know Ms. Dosher in junior high, and Mrs. Woolley in high school, and even teachers before that, Mrs. Corr in elementary school, um, Mrs. Lark in the fifth grade, who said, "This is this is creative, Jared. This is a good story." And my brain just went, "Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed doing this, and now I've got a grown-up saying yeah. I'm good at it. If I didn't have those influences, I, I don't know, but I, I might have. You know, it might have been an internal cultivation as well. I might have because I already enjoyed it." it might've just been like, I don't care what you think. I'm going to, I'm going to keep going. Um, Yeah. You know, you think of those with, with musical talent as well. My older daughter just has an ear. Now we got her, you know, piano lessons and we got her music lessons and she did, you know, we put her in musical theater and those sorts of things. And those are things that are cultivating and, and shaping and informing and teaching. But she had a gift that, you know, that my wife and I didn't have, or at least, you know, didn't discover uh, when she was young, that she, you know, she could sit down on a piano and know how to recreate the things she just heard, you know, so she can play by ear in some sense, but she also was taught how to read music. Um, there's, you know, some are just born with, I think, maybe a greater sensibility to it. Yeah. But um, I think everyone is probably born with some sense of creativity to them.
0: Yeah. Right. We have a couple of questions from author and pastor, Jonathan Dodson. He asks, why do you take pictures of your feet all the time?
1: <laughs> That's a fantastic question. Jonathan, did you not know that the the feet of those who bring the good news are beautiful? Why would I not? We just talked about beauty. So why would I not? How beautiful are the feet of, the, of those who bring the good news?
0: And if there's anybody who brings good news, it's Jerry Wilson. That's right.
1: Well, and I've noticed... Um, I don't know that I'm the first person to ever do this, but I did notice that after I started doing it, a lot more guys started doing it. So yeah. I think I'm kind of influential. This is my right. only. This is my only claim to influence. No, I mean in you the literally evangelical s- world,
0: sparked Lost, which is a massive TV. <laughs> well, <sensation>. that's <laughs> true. I just
1: mean in the evangelical community. In that, community, if my major right. contribution is a sneaker and backpack <laughs> photos, creatures and sneakers. in the airport, I'll take it. I'll take it. It's better than nothing. Amazing.
0: So he also asks, and, and I, you may have answered this to some extent, but how has writing fiction influenced your nonfiction writing? Is there anything you've kind of brought from, from one to the other?
1: Yeah, for sure, um, because I started there as well. Yeah. I think um, the way language is used, I try to write um, not just nonfiction books, but even in my sermons, I try to compose in a way where the language is interesting and engaging um, you know, I've been told by a few that um, that they notice this difference, which is helpful and encouraging to me. Yeah. That I'm wanting to write in an artful way, not not you know, not in a distractingly eloquent way, but in a way that engages, that sounds different, that is a delight to the ears, that adorns the beauty of Christ, that adorns the grace mm-hmm. of God. I don't want to write you know books on theology or Christian ministry that read like you know I don't know the microwave you know, handbook or whatever, the toaster manual. I I don't want to, because there's a lot of non, you know, Christian nonfiction that reads that way. It's like, here's the data. And it's not as if the data is, you know, not helpful. But I think trying to adorn the beauty of the data with beautiful language and engaging illustrations and, you know, creative, you know, creative writing and insights um, is just a way of trying to echo, the bigness of God and the creativity of God as well um, and, the, and the glory yeah. of his son. So it, it it definitely informs the way I write nonfiction, having grown up with story as a concept in my head all the time. Um, and in fact, I'm, I, I've contracted recently with Zondervan to write a book on writing and the, mm. the major idea behind it. The tentative title is called The Storied Life. And it's basically about how impactful just the concept of story is to us and how it should impact our, our approach to writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. St- you know, story informs um, you know, how we approach the, uh, the art of communication.
0: So wait, you, you wrote a fictional story about people in a story, and now you're going to write a yeah. book about writing? <laughs> that's right, that's right. It's getting meta, man, all the time. It's so meta. Yeah. All right. We have a question from pastor and speaker Sam Alberry. He asks, with all the crazy in the world and the church— what stops you from becoming jaded or cynical?
1: <laughs> well, not staring at the crazy too long. Because I, cause I, because you certainly would become if, if you just stared at the crazy too long. Um, I don't spend an inordinate amount of time on social media. I probably spend a lot of time on social media. But I try to be very measured in who I follow. Um, I mute and block well, I think. <laughs> the art of blockering. <laughs> the art of blocking, I think I've... Uh, you know, trying to approach... Uh, no, I think it's... When you're engaged with, with people in real life, there's sometimes, like, if you're reading, like, some of these yahoos on, on Twitter, don't you sometimes wonder, like, do you have friends? <laughs> Is there no one in your life who can say, hey, you're a little weird or caustic or judgment, you know? I have friends, actually. If I acted like this, I would have my pastors, I would have people who pulled pull me inside going, what are you doing? I have employers who, you know... There's just there's other people in my life, and there's ministry in, in my life as well. And yeah. that's one of the beauties of a multi-generational church too, is when you have older folks in your church, uh, and even some younger folks especially, because Twitter really, I mean that's the the primary place I hang out in terms of social media. Right. And there really is kind of a slice generationally. Yeah. There's a whole crowd older that have no no clue about it. And there's a whole crowd younger that have no clue about it.
0: It's like an elder millennial. Crowd. It's a millennial
1: Gen X kind of experience at this <laughs> yeah. point. There are some outliers, but that's pretty much what it is. And so it's healthy to be in a church where what the what you're talking about at small group and what you're talking about at elders meeting and what you're talking about in the in the Sunday school class and what you're talking about in the four year has right. nothing to do with what's you know on social media. Right. Um, that's so refreshing to to actually live real life. And so, and I know Sam has that experience as well. Um, But real life is an antidote to the jadedness um, and this, you know, cynicism that can result of just the craziness in the world. And there's, I mean, there's enough craziness in real life too. But there's just a difference between sitting across, you know, a table or you know, uh, living room space from somebody who's got wonky ideas, and actually, you know, responding to their avatar. I think. It's, it's just a different thing entirely.
0: All right, final audience question. And this one, I think, comes off from a little nugget you gave us previously about a book that you have in development. We have a question from Jason Deusing who works at MBTS and is also a general
1: editor. This is my boss. The he, he's the provost of the school, so I need to like tread carefully here.
0: He asks, can you tell us about your novel, Black Dog Man? Or is it just a Sasquatch-like myth?
1: <laughs> yeah, Black Dog Man. This is the second novel that I was telling you about. So it's the second yep. book that's yep. never been published. This is the, uh, you know, Becky... When my corpse is, is, is fresh, you can start shopping this around, make some money. Yeah, this is your best this, work. This is my post-mortem. You know, I can get famous uh, if the window of publication is right. Um, yeah, what can I tell you about it? Um, it's about a, a pastor's kid who hates his dad, who um, decides to run away from everything. He's, try, he, he's really trying to run away from himself. But he goes into the Venezuelan Amazon to be a missionary among the Yanomamo Indians. Uh, one of the last untouched tribes. Uh, and and he's a real thing. I didn't, I didn't make this up. <laughs> this is a real thing. And I actually did research for this. I wanted to look at their language and their culture. And, and while he's uh, among the Yanomamo, he discovers there's this guy who's like hiding out. And they're afraid of him. They regard him as almost like a demon type person. He doesn't look like them. And, and um, the... The missionary begins to investigate who this guy is, befriend this guy, figure out who he is. And there's a big twist. The mystery, the solution, who who this guy is unlocks one of the biggest mysteries in American history. So that's my teaser for people. Get on the phones, get out the pen and paper and the email, write to publishers, say... Someone's got to publish Black Dog Man so I can find out what this has got to do with anything.
0: We can't wait till after you die to learn the answer to this mystery. <laughs> That's right. Nobody murder me so you can find
1: out if, uh, if we're friends, I'll tell you what the what the twist is or what the revelation is. Amazing. Yeah, and it, it's a big cha- It's a it's not a supernatural thriller like my other two books kind of are. Yeah. It's a um, kind of an adventure uh, it's a sus- it's a suspense thriller, not a supernatural thriller. So it becomes he um, sort of there's a, uh, a guy who at the time is hunting Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan. This, you can tell how long ago I wrote this. this is before bin Laden, you know, before SEAL Team 6. But it was a SEAL Team 6 kind of guy who's on the hunt for bin Laden. And he gets the call um, that this figure has been located in the jungles of Venezuela and he needs to go tie up a loose end. And so the missionary is basically now trying to save this man's life. And they're on the run from a very talented tire up of loose ends guy. Yeah. I think it's great, I man. That. I really enjoyed writing it. It took me a long time to write it. And uh, um, I'm really proud of it. I hope one day it'll see the, the light of day. Incredible.
0: So you, you actually, essentially, you have the full plot written, but it just, it would probably need to be cut down, you're thinking? Or? I don't
1: think so. Okay. I think, you know, he maybe he was right first time author, but it's not longer than novels yeah. are. It's just in his mind was longer than a some guy in his first book should be.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are a lot of long novels that are justified in that. Yeah, so,
1: and it's yeah. kind of epic. I mean, there's there's stages. There's kind of like, it's it's his life um, in 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 uh, Caracas, mm-hmm. um, trying to build, and then there's on the edge of the jungle where he's you know you know preparing, and then he's in the jungle, and then he's on the run. So there's kind of four parts to the book, and it and it kind of. Um, is laid out that way. So it's, it's somewhat of an episodic, kind of epic story. Right.
0: Cool. Well, listeners, write into b h uh, <laughs> ask about the sequel to Echo Island and Black Dog Man, um, and also write into Christianity Today about the art of pastoring. We, we need to get more Jared C. Wilson. We need to get some more. That's what people need, let me tell you. <laughs> I, I think they do. Uh, Listeners, we do encourage you to pick up any of Jared's current books, including his uh, all-new book, Gifts of Grace, 25 Advent Devotions. Um, Obviously, it's the perfect time for that as we enter the Christmas season. Of course, uh, pick up Echo Island, which is uh, an excellent thriller that you will enjoy. And, Jared, if any of our listeners would like to maybe get in touch with you or learn more about your work, where should they go?
1: You can go to jaredcwilson.com, and i got my speaking schedule, all my book lists, And, um, you know, the, the links to my other websites are all there.
0: Beautiful. Well, Jared, thank you so much for joining me on Forefront 360. And listeners, until next time, keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art.